I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. Before we get into it, though, I would like to relate a feel-good story that occurred this past week. Uh, my wife, Meg, and I uh, had found that a packet with all credit cards, driver's license, had been dropped someplace. And when we tried to find it, and we looked all over in the house and, and the car, we couldn't. And we were about to get on the phone and start going through the angst-ridden and laborious process of trying to get all those things replaced. I hear a knock at the door. I go, and there's a young woman. And in her hand, she is holding the packet. She found it while she was making food deliveries for a delivery service. I saw it in the bike lane in Fort Bragg and picked it up was going to turn it into the police station and then realized here's the address on the driver's license. She returned it to us. And I have to say, uh, Diane, you are a really good person and uh, your family should be very proud of you. This was a really nice thing to do. So today is the fifth Friday. And that means that Phil Worf, political science professor at Mendocino College, is my guest today. For the rest of the year, there are three other Fifth Friday months, July, September, and December. After next week's show, I will be taking what I hope is a short break to take care of some non-station matters. I hope to be back in time for the July Fifth Friday show. So, uh, I think it's... Uh, a lot of things that we have to talk about today, and some of the topics are the November elections that don't look good for the Democrats, the 14th Amendment, especially Part 3. And so without further ado, let me introduce Phil Worf, Mendocino College political science professor, here with me as my fifth Friday guest as usual. Good morning, Phil. Hey, Bob. Good morning. Glad to be with you again. Well, it's really good to have you. And uh, we have developed this relationship over uh, the radio, and I'm really happy to have been having it with you. And I hope to then continue it sometime in the future. So I hope so. You're the guest. Why don't you pick a topic and let's go? Okay. Well, I mean, uh, I, I know we had talked about uh, Biden's approval numbers and uh, what that means for him and for the Democrats and some of their challenges in, in the fall. So why don't we just start there? Um, you know, I've seen a lot of this recent polling data it shows um, Biden's uh, approval rating underwater, you know, ever since about August of last year, it's been declining substantially. And um, there, I've seen no polling in the last uh, couple of months that shows approval above 50%. And so, um, you know, what is this related to? Well, there are a lot of things, obviously the economy, probably the biggest thing, of course. Um, but but you have I think it really started around the time of the Afghanistan withdrawal, um, which sort of like he, you know, which, uh, which it seemed like he didn't really, um, you know, wasn't controlling that situation as much as would be expected. Uh, there are a lot of you know ins and outs and details there. But I think he lost a lot of confidence among some people and also, you know, wasn't able to get his uh, agenda through Congress the, or the Build Back Better stuff. And uh, as We've actually talked about before, um, you know, some challenge with him uh, for him among younger people and Latinos and things that, uh, you know, groups we wouldn't expect necessarily. 
So, you know, but when you're looking at inflation at a 40 year high and you're looking at an economy that's declining uh, as of, you know, last quarter, it's just a tough situation. You know, one of the things that political scientists always talk about is in terms of presidential power is the force of circumstance, right? Sometimes you come into office and you have a really great circumstance, such as George W. Bush, let's say, uh, in uh, um, uh, in 20. I mean, sorry, in 2000, where he inherits this big budget surplus and all this stuff. And, you know, Biden comes in, he's inheriting this uh, situation that, that declined rapidly due, due to no fault of his own. So it's just a really tough situation for him right now. And um, will things get better for him? Well, it remains to be seen. But, um, you know, I, I think he, he may have a victory or two here at some point and, and it'll, it'll uh, you know, get back, get better. But typically, you know, um, Presidents do see their numbers. They have this sort of honeymoon period after they're elected. They have groups that even voted against them that say, you know, we'll give them a benefit of the doubt. And those groups, you know, even conservatives and Republicans, well, not Republican identifiers, but even conservative identifiers, you know, pretty close. Um, different racial groups, pretty close. And now you're seeing the differences in those groups that you would expect to see emerge uh, over time. Um, and, you know, Trump never had any big approval ratings Biden probably, you know, is in the same boat for sure. So, you know, it's just, um, uh, you know, he's doing maybe as well as we could expect at this particular moment. And that's not very good. Well, one of the problems I see is that he doesn't get any credit for the good things that he does. And he gets blamed for the things that he can't control. So he's in a no win situation, no matter what happens. I'm hoping that coming towards November, maybe by July or August, uh, things will start to look better. And one of the things that he didn't do was raise gas prices. Uh, and Congress, or some people anyway, are thinking that the oil companies are creating a bigger uh, price increase than is warranted. And the state of California, the attorney general here, is looking into that. That and plastics, which uh, you know, like the drug companies, like the tobacco companies, uh, they didn't do anything wrong. And yet they have been trying to undermine the public's perception for decades. So, OK, uh, as far as the price increases and the gas increases, uh, Putin bears some of the blame for that, for his invasion of Ukraine. So there are lots of other factors uh, whether he could get back some of those numbers, as I said, we'll have to see. But uh, and you mentioned uh, the Latino vote. Well, that's eroding. And in southern Texas, as a for instance, uh, near the border, a lot of uh, Latinos are not going with Biden. And you have mentioned to me uh, about the youth vote that that was a pretty good supporter of Biden in 2020. But yet here we go. When you do the polling, uh, the youth vote is sinking for Biden. Why would that be happening? Well, um, in terms of the youth vote, um, I mean, you know, I think what's happening, uh, young people are, there's a lot of angst among young people. Um, there was a big mobilization of young people, particularly in some of those swing states like Georgia, for example, and Arizona, 
where young people, you know, gave uh, Biden huge um, margins. They turned out at a bigger percentage, much bigger than they did uh, in terms of the margin and, and in terms of the number of, vo of you know, votes cast uh, than for Hillary Clinton. And so he really benefited from that, mainly, you know, partially, you know, from from Trump, a reaction to Trump. But, um, you know, it's been a really tough time for young people. You have, um, you know, there's a few possible explanations here. One is that um, Biden's not progressive enough for them. Uh, and that's certainly you know, probably true for some uh, of the youth, activist youth vote, right? Um, you know, they want to they want work on um, you know gun control and student loan debt and you know the environment and things like that, which uh, he's not really done or been able to do uh, anything on. They they're they're frustrated about the economy, obviously, but they have a greater sense that uh, we don't fully understand as older people that. Uh, of the the limits that they face and the the challenges that they face that that um, other generations really haven't. I mean, you look at some of these young people; they've come of age during this period where they can't even you know go to school with each other and stuff like that. Um, they see you know be they're priced out of the housing market. Inflation is at a, a you know forty year high. They um, you know the kind of uh, the kind of jobs that are available aren't um, you know the kind of jobs that the best kind of jobs that you could have to for you know a a, a you know uh, a, a future that looks more bright and positive and so I think there's a lot of um, concern about um, or, or about the a capitalist economy and is it delivering the the benefits that they expect it to deliver and there's a lot of um, eroded trust in that and also just in government in general you know not being able to respond to uh, things effectively. Uh, and so there's a lot of, you know, trouble among young people. The biggest, you know, concern I think for Latino voters too, is really about turnout. Um, if, if young voters are not feeling they're getting, being satisfied in any way, then they're less likely to turn out in the midterms, which they're less likely to do anyway. And so that's the big fear. Um, but you know, it's, it's kind of like with, um, and so for young people, that is a big fear, but if you think about Latinos and African-American voters, you know, it kind of boils down to the two-party system, right? You've got two options that really have any possibility of, of winning. And so it's kind of the lesser of the two evils. And even though that's not the best way to win votes, um, that's kind of what the, the choice comes down to at the presidential level, for sure. And if you look at what, you know, um, minority voters and what young voters are saying, they're they're saying in polls that they're going to turn out at similar levels and they're saying that they're going to vote in similar ways uh in the midterm elections so um i think they're expressing dissatisfaction but also but is that going to translate into big problems for the democrats in 2018 more than they are 2022 more than more than they would have in general i, I don't know i don't think so uh, i do think turnout will be you know could be a big problem though for for democrats where those populations are really important well, with an executive order, couldn't Biden eliminate some of the student debt uh, that is out there? And would that make a difference amongst uh, the younger people? He can. Uh, and that's where the, the, you know, these youth activist groups are really uh, unhappy about is that he hasn't taken any executive action just in the last week or so. I, th I think that he's been a lot of counsel about um, his decline in support among the youth voters. And so he said, hey, I'm going to I'm looking at that. I'll have an answer in a couple of weeks about what I can do. Uh, obviously, it'd be better to get it through Congress. But, um, you know, he stymied stymied there. There's it's interesting, though, you have a majority of young people who want to see student debt relief. There are there's a big chunk who want it all all debt, um, you know, taken care of or, you know, dissolved. But there's also 
a fairly sizable chunk of young people that don't want to see any of that, um, you know, debt uh, removed at the, you know, at the, at the stroke of a pen. Um, <clears throat> they're a minority, but so it's not a, so it's, a, it seems like a, a good issue. It is a good issue and an important thing for Biden to focus on, but is that going to solve his problems with young people? Um, it'll help, but it's not going to, but again, you're right. I mean, it seems like um, for many uh, young people, are, he could do something. He hasn't done something and whether, you know, what his rationale is for that and whether it makes sense or not is less important than the fact that nothing's happened. And, um, you know, so this lead, this is sort of all ties into their lack of uh, uh, or dissatisfaction with, um, you know, with government and its outcomes in our system. And uh, this raises big questions about the future. What that would do if uh, Biden were to relieve some of that student debt would be a symbol, because, as you mentioned, he would probably like to get it through Congress. But that's not going to happen. The intransigence of Republicans at this point is one of the lowest ebbs ever, I think, or at least in our lifetimes, to see the enmity between the two. And uh, the big lie is the biggest problem, because if you and it's asymmetrical warfare on the part of Republicans versus Democrats, uh, it looks like Republicans will lie through their teeth about everything and yet Democrats are loath to go to that level and do that. So uh, the Republicans are stymieing Biden at almost every turn, uh, Mitch McConnell especially, because in the House, Democrats do have a, an edge. But in, in the Senate, because of the filibuster, it's hard to get anything through. And especially with cinema and Mon Mansion. <laughs> Which party are they for? I mean, with Manchin, you can see he's a uh, a coal and oil baron. So, of course, he doesn't want to adhere to the Democrats' clean up the environment program. Cinema, I don't know what her thing is. I think she just wants to get money because she doesn't seem to have any political philosophy at all. Well, I think that's true. It's hard to pin her down. Um, you know, I think as much as anything, she's in a conservative state and she wants to sort of, uh, or mostly conservative, she wants to sort of um, show her, show off her credentials as someone who's an independent thinker and this kind of thing. Um, you know, uh, but it, in a mansion, of course, you're right about that. It does raise questions about what exactly they're committed to and um, whether what uh, the, the needs of the country uh, are more important than the needs of this small slice the, of uh, the public they're interested in for the most part. Um, you know, politicians, uh, it's not uncommon for politicians to not tell the full truth or something like that. And, you know, every politician does that from time to time. But it is uh, it is striking the extent to which um, Republicans have uh, sort of bent over backwards to maintain the big lie and to um, try to justify it. I mean, the Republican National Committee calls it legitimate political discourse. I mean, this is really um, astonishing and dangerous, I think, for the future. And so, um, you know, the Republicans uh, today, they're, they're much more, um, you know, willing to uh, accept 
solutions that are anti-democratic. They've grown um, anti-institutional uh, and in ways that Republicans never were in the past. Um, and they've just kind of they've been taken over by these conspiracy theories. And um, many of their elected officials have, you know, frankly speaking, you know, lost touch <laughs> and uh, just elected, you know, uh, in, in many ways. And so I think there um, is I think the Republican Party is changing. I think it's uh, changing big. But I think that you're seeing right now also that there's some pushback against this sort of Trump Trumpization of the Republican Party in Michigan just in the last couple of days. For example, there were uh, the party convention at which two, uh, the attorney general and secretary of state were, um, you know, were selected. Their nominees were selected. They're big Trump uh, advocates. And, um, you know, the rest. And there's a big blow up in the party about this. And so are we going to see more of that? Um, maybe we will. And uh, I think um, a lot of it is even um, you know, recognition on, on behalf of sort of old guard Republicans that there's a that this is a this is a dark hole that they're going down. And um, is this going to work in 2024? And, you know, I, I think those are big, big questions that um, you know, maybe it'll work in Georgia um, in Michigan, maybe not. And so there, you know, this, there's a debate within the Republican Party that's emerging in a way that it didn't uh, prior to 2020, uh, 2020. One thing that could bring the youth vote and the Latino vote to the Democrats is if the messaging going forward is not a contest between Democrats and Republicans, but between democracy and autocracy. It looks like the Republican Party, you said, is changing and changing severely, but not towards any other philosophy, but let's run everything, let's be in charge, and let's have, and this is what is beyond my understanding, let's have that idiot, a dumpy Trumpy, uh, douchebag Donnie, and he'll be our leader. This guy is an idiot. He does have rat-like cunning, and that's why he was able to get this far, but he knows nothing about anything. Well, I mean, he he really doesn't, and that's that's true. And that's some of the, the some of the big Republican donors in Michigan are, are have some pretty harsh words for him, uh, similar to the ones that that you're you're saying. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's um, if you look at some of these new Republican members of Congress, there is a desire. I mean, there's a on the left, there's this criticism of the Republicans now that there's um, a desire to create this sort of white Christian nationalist um, is, uh, government where. Um, this it's, poll shows about 20% of the public that believe that um, there are only certain kinds of people who actually can legitimately be leaders in the U.S., and mainly those would be white, culturally conservative, native-born citizens. And any, any um, accomplishments, any leadership, anything by other groups uh, is not legitimate, and if somehow... Um, they are defeated at the ballot box, like in 2020, that that has to be illegitimate. There's got to be something wrong with it. And they're more and more willing to engage in these sort of autocratic, violent efforts. And like we saw on January 6th. And so, you know, the one, the thing that if you think back about this, um, if you think back about the recall the Jim Crow South in the, in the middle of the 20th century, this is really the kind of thing that the modern Republican Party would like to see, this sort of imposition of a 
a system that excludes uh, uh, certain groups and that imposes that exclusion by um, violence and um, the you know changing of the law to uh, an anti-democratic measures let's say and part of that is the, these new laws against um, that try to limit voting and other kinds of things in, in many of those states and so uh, the republicans are, are careening in that direction i think that's why there's some pushback but is it enough doesn't seem like it will be until there's some real uh, you know, until there's some big event or collapse that really uh, brings it about. Would that be in uh, 2024 if Trump comes back? Could be. Um, it's, it's, it's likely um, that he would, he would, it's unlikely he would win. Uh, but, you know, that's a long way away, Bob, and we all said that in, in the 2016 too. Um, but I think this is, I want to talk about the connection here with Putin a little bit uh, uh, too, if, uh, sure, if you want to. Well, I think this is part of, you know, back at the beginning of the, the Ukraine war, even before it, you heard Donald Trump and he, this was even, you know, years before would say things like, the, you know, that Trump, that uh, Putin was savvy and um, Mike Pompeo, the former secretary of state said he was shrewd and he was, uh, had respect for him and all this kind of stuff. And to some degree, Putin is the kind of person that Trump would like to be. He would like to be able to um, remove his political opponents or um, journalists to oppose him. Uh, he would, um, you know, he he would like to have the society where there's a clear binary choice of, you know, between men and women and, you know, gay and straight and all this stuff that could uh, and uh, a very clear you know, perspective on this and uh, dominance by sort of a, a white Christian um, element. And they look at Russia and they see this uh, to some degree. And I think it's even though many Republicans have sort of distanced themselves from uh, Putin after the uh, invasion of Ukraine, um, there's still a number who, um, you know, sort of think about Trump or sorry, Putin and, and say this guy's clever and this guy's tough and you know if there's anything we want more than anything else it's somebody who's tough and he anytime you criticize the biggest criticism a republican can give you is to say that you're weak and uh putin is anything but weak and, they, and i think there's a big um, a great deal of respect for that and, and desire to to be like that for, among for trump well what we've seen in these two months since uh, he invaded ukraine is that his military is not much more than a paper tiger. You have this little country of Ukraine uh, with 50 million people, maybe, and uh, Russia is, what, uh, 250 million? They have this vaunted military. And yet what seems to have happened, and this is what might happen in an autocracy anywhere, even here, is that the oligarchs uh, rake off the cream and when they were in charge of the contracts to supply the military, so it seems, uh, they did not allow the best materials or the best designs to go forward. And what uh, Putin has found out in uh, Ukraine is that the, the machinery doesn't always work uh, and that the meals ready to eat or whatever meals they were given, some of them were dated, don't use after 2002. It was like Donald Rumsfeld says, you go to war with the equipment and the army that you've got. The up-armored um, um, machines that carried the soldiers were only changed after they saw all those IEDs. So here in, in Ukraine, the oligarchs have degraded the ability and... How many generals have the Ukraines picked off at this point? Seven or eight? 
Yeah. That's a rare occasion. Yeah, it's been a number, Bob, and I think you're right. And there's no, the, you, you can't um, reasonably make the argument that the Russians have uh, performed as well as they wanted to in Ukraine. I think they believed it would be over in a couple of days. Um, I think they believed that the West would have no real response, which is what happened with uh, Crimea. They were wrong about that. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Russia is a kleptocracy. And uh, they, to the extent that it was possible, you know, the, if, if it was, if there was a, a conflict between, you know, having a, a well-supplied military with the best technology and being able to rake off the cream, as you said, uh, we know what the clear choice was. And so this has come back to haunt uh, Putin in very real ways. I mean, the the number of casualties has been phenomenal, um, you know, relative to what would be expected. And you're right about the, you know, the leadership that's been taken out and just this sort of, um, you know, uh, poor poor planning, uh, you know, where you have, um, you got a line of tanks, you know, 30 miles long or whatever it was, and they're going down one single road. I mean, how, how easy a target is that? And so, you know, it's been a, so far it's been a failure. Is, are, are the Russians going to be able to hold on and achieve some of their objectives? Probably, but is it going to be what they had hoped? No. And I think you're also going to see um, a lot more negative consequences for the Russian economy. And those sanctions are just starting to really have big effects. And, you know, can Putin survive this? Um, yeah, uh, because he's able to, you know, get rid of his political opponents. Uh, and also, it's tough for people who have a, a kid or, or a family member or something who's killed in Ukraine to come back and say, you know, this was wrong. It wasn't worth it. We shouldn't have done it uh, because they they have to. It, it makes it difficult to justify that loss, you know, that um, of some of a loved one. So, you know, Putin's probably going to um, he's going to be able to maintain his uh, standing at home, I think. But, um, you know, it's certainly dissatisfied with the way the war is going. And it's all all relates to the way that, you know, his uh, uh, he's he's run the country. One of the other things that uh, Biden doesn't get any credit for is gathering together through diplomacy all of the rest of the world. There were only five countries at the U.N. that voted against any sanctions or condemnation of Russia. And that was by Biden and Blinken and whoever else was involved in gathering together and selling the case why they should oppose Putin. No diplomatic effect like this has occurred since George H.W. Bush uh, put together the first uh, Gulf War. And he had all those other countries not only participate, but pay for a part of that thing. That was a lot of diplomacy on the part of George H.W. Bush. And I think Biden, in this case, has done a lot of that and gets no credit for it. Well, I think that's right. I mean, if you look at um, a country like Germany, for example, um, and the kind of uh, threat that they um, now face, I mean, um, which they did not want to recognize. I mean, I think when you look at uh, what was happening before the war, the Europeans were convinced that this was not going to happen. And the U.S. intelligence agencies were saying you should get ready because it's going to happen. And we know it's going to happen. It's going to happen very soon. But I think the Europeans are still shocked by it. And that's helped Biden mobilize a little bit. And if you look at countries like Poland and Bulgaria, uh, who've actually now been cut off by Russia from uh, oil supply or from energy supplies, to, for, to, to bring them along, even though they're NATO um, members, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's been, um, you know, a pretty, uh, pretty strong performance by um, Biden and his diplomatic team. 
Um, you know, can he hold this coalition together over time? Probably um, because of the, you know, because of Putin and how dangerous he is and even making threats about, you know, don't rule out the possibility of using nuclear weapons. I mean, this is crazy stuff. And so it's in one level, it's kind of easy to mobilize against this, but it's also, um, you know, it's a challenge to get people to accept um, real costs and real consequences uh, for you know sticking with the u.s and uh, and against russia here and so and biden i think has done a really good job there um but you know foreign policy you know presidents um you know the, the public's beliefs and attitudes about foreign policy can can range from a very very positive to very negative very quickly um but and but there's really no important and how and how effective this this is and and i think you're right biden's done a good job uh it hasn't helped his approval rating however there is another aspect to this that was brilliant and no no time in the past that i could remember did a u.s president release information gathered by the intelligence services and put it out in public because what biden did is he warned the world what Putin was about to do. They had intercepted transmissions and other things. And so that he put out exactly what Putin was going to do. And that proved to be the case. Where is the credit for that? Well, well, I, I don't know, uh, Bob, but I think, uh, you know, it's just really, uh, you know, is the does the public hold Biden responsible for this happening or not being able to stop it or something like that? I'm sure there's part of the public who, who thinks that. And there's part of the public who just does not does not know about it, does not focus enough on it, um, particularly, particularly foreign policy stuff. But uh, I think you can say that Biden's done a good job here. Um, but it's unclear exactly you know, what's going to happen. We know so far it's been tough for Russia and a lot of that ha- you know, it's had to do with Biden's leadership. Um, and so he deserves credit. But I think in terms of these kinds of issues, you get a big rally at, at the beginning of this, um, you know, U.S. Uh, engagement abroad. Um, but you, it's hard to hard to sustain. And, you know, you don't get a lot of uh, you don't get a lot of votes for good diplomacy necessarily. You get a lot of votes for putting money in people's pockets. And that's what Biden hasn't really been able to do through his um, Build Back Better plan and stuff like that yet. And and I think that's that's causing him, um, you know, his approval rating is uh, is weighed down by that more than it's buoyed by um, what's happening in Europe. So let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics, A Love Story. Our guest today is Phil Worf political science professor at Mendocino College, and I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Why don't we move along to uh, what might happen this November? Uh, The Democrats usually have a platform uh, for an election year, and the Republicans have been loath to do that. In fact, Mitch McConnell said that when we take over, then we'll let you know what we're going to do. Uh, In the meantime, though, uh, Rick Scott, a uh, uh, senator from Florida, uh, the former, I, I guess he wasn't really disgraced, but he was running uh, the Columbia healthcare system of for-profit hospitals that was fined $1.7 billion for cheating Medicare. Under his watch, he suffered nothing from that. But in any event, that's I like to give some context and maybe I go too far. But in any event, Rick Scott 
in opposition to Mitch McConnell, came out with an 11 point plan that he would like to see the Republicans employ uh, after 2022 and then, of course, 2024. So what's in his 11 point plan? We're not going to get into the whole 11 points, but one of the more interesting aspects is that 57 percent of Americans who don't make enough money to pay taxes, that is income taxes, he wants them to start having some skin in the game. And so he wants to tax those 50% of Americans who are unused to having a tax return file. That's number one. Number two, he wants to take Medicare, uh, Social Security, uh, and put them on a five-year sunset uh, point. So Forget about the regular money that you're getting and the payments for your health care. He wants them to be ended and then have to be uh, reissued every five years. So the way things go uh, uh, politically, it's not that one party uh, runs everything forever. It's back and forth. So if the Republicans are in charge in one of the fifth year, they may not authorize it. So where is our Social Security and Medicare going to come from? That, that's part of what he wants to do. Yeah. Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, the tax everyone thing is probably a good, um, a good message, a good argument for a Republican primary. Um, but it's hard to imagine how uh, in a Republican primary or any, any election, particularly um, at, from someone from Florida, could actually make this argument that somehow um, Medicare and Social Security should be on the chopping block every five years. It's really quite astonishing. Um, you know, maybe he's relying on the public's, some of the public's lack of information about these programs and, and um, you know, how much benefit they get from them and how little they cost relative to that benefit and so forth. But, um you know, I, I think um, I think it would be crazy, though, Bob. Every you know, one of the most um, popular programs in the United States is a Social Security program and uh, Medicare as well. And you know, old, older people rely on on these programs because they can't get private medical insurance and things of that sort in many cases. And um, but anyway, if you it seems to me it would benefit the Democrats actually if you put this on the chopping block every five years because it would be so hard for the Republicans to actually get rid of it uh, because it's so popular and I think increasingly more difficult for them. And so I think every five years you give the Democrats a really great opportunity to talk about how they they want to protect you know older Americans and so forth and and Republicans want to you know put that uh, put that to the test every five years. So it's hard to imagine where he gets this stuff from, but, um, you know, uh, he must have some information that suggests that this is a winning issue for him. But uh, I think it is. It's really interesting to me that uh, Mitch McConnell would say that. Right. Um, we don't we'll, we'll tell you what we have in mind after the election, which is uh, maybe not maybe not a bad idea, uh, Bob, but uh, it's very unusual. huh? Well, that's what happened in 2020. There was no pl- uh, Republican platform. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, there actually was. Yeah, that's a good point. There was really no official Republican platform, which is, um, I guess, never happened before. Um, and, and this is part of it, right? I mean, this is part of this uh, sort of movement among some Republicans who are more than ready to, uh, 
you know, to go against or undermine or violate democratic norms in order to maintain uh, uh, power. I mean, if you look at a lot of the stuff in Georgia and other states where Republicans took it on the chin unexpectedly in 2020, you're looking at lots of, um, you know, so-called you know voting reforms that are basically designed to keep uh, certain people who sh- shouldn't uh, have as much impact from from voting, making it more difficult for certain kinds of people to vote and so forth. And so if you look at um, what the Republican Party is doing here in these particular things, it's basically trying to trying to um, maintain control via um, manipulating this, this, this system to the extent that they can. I think uh, one of the one of the um, interesting quotes that I, I heard was that uh, about this uh, sort of leaning into this approach is that you know, there's this law in, in Tennessee where um, uh, you know you, that they want to lower the age of marriage to 12, uh, and so you, you could actually have a situation as a young woman in Tennessee where um, you know your abuser could actually marry you, then control your reproductive uh, capability, and then keep you from actually voting to undo it. And so this is a really dangerous uh, future if you think about it this way. And, um, you know, I think some Republicans now recognize this, you know, relative to what I'm saying about Michigan. And uh, outside the South, this may come to a head. Um, But but I don't know know where Rick Scott gets some of this stuff from. But, um, you know, it seems like that would be a good issue for Democrats, to to be honest. And the states that will be hit the hardest by this program, especially the taxes that will be paid, are, are in uh, most of them in the South. It's Mississippi, West Virginia, Arkansas, Louisiana, Alabama, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Georgia, New Mexico, South Carolina, and Florida. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that's the those are the places where you're going to see um, sort of grinding poverty. And I guess to the extent that most of uh, the largest impact in terms of you know poverty and and uh, um, well that you would see among minority communities so maybe it's popular to say that these these people are um, you know they're mooching off the government and they should pay some taxes because it's not fair to the rest of us and you know um, I think it's probably a, a that is a, an argument that sells uh, particularly in those places and so I I, under, I get that but um, the social security thing I don't get. Uh, no, I don't either. Um, let's talk about the big lie. Uh, and why does that still have legs? And the big lie is that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump. Now, one of the things that I think about when I hear that is then why did the Democrats lose a number of senatorial seats and 14 seats in the House if it was stolen from Trump, why wouldn't all those other Republicans have been elected? Yeah, that's a good question. And if you look at the Republicans around the country who are um, still um, sort of making this argument and and uh, they're using their support for Trump and and this, uh, you know, these lies about the election, they're using us to, to gin up support uh, for their for their primary or their coming election, um, you know, it's hard to see how they could all uh, say in Arizona, for example, somehow we all were legitimately elected, but yet Trump was, um, you know, the vote for, for Trump was was somehow uh, improper or, um, you know, what have you. And and so that that's, a, you know, it seems like a hard thing to, to, to square up. 
Um, but this is, um, you know, Republicans have made a decision or in many, in many states, the way to appeal to a Republican primary voters to really, um, you know, double down on this. And, you know, we haven't really seen the kind of effective pushback that um, hopefully we, that, you know, those who those who, um, you know, oppose Trump or those who uh, think that the, the January 6th uh, incident was an insurrection. Uh, the January 6th committee really is sort of um, in some ways running out of time. Uh, what's going to happen? Is, is Trump ever uh, going to face any uh, repercussions from this? And um, if not, what does that mean for the future of our democracy? And these are big, important questions. And I don't think we know um, we know the answers and there's not a lot of time left, assuming that we um, what we expect to happen is, um, you know, the Republicans to, you know, win the House potentially very likely. And then the Senate, uh, who knows, these are going to be very tight uh, races in the fall, I think. Um, so so it's a big uh, so so what's going to happen there? And, and is there is the Justice Department actually investigating this? Um and we, you know, we just saw the these new uh, tapes from um, from uh, the president's former, uh, or for, from the potential uh, house coming house um, speaker, um, Mike McCarthy. And uh, so, it, you know, uh, the the committee still has more work to do. There's lots of evidence out there. The New York Times says they have more audio about this, uh, and why aren't they releasing it? Is to is a really good question. Um, so anyway, there's one one has to wonder what's going to become of the big lie and is there going to, are there going to be repercussions for, for those who are continuing to push it. And that's, that's, um, I, I worry that that's the case is that they're not going to actually face um, the consequences and uh, this will be considered to be acceptable kinds of behavior going forward, um, which would be really a devastating blow to, you know, a, a democratic system. The uh, January 6th committee has announced that they're going to hold public hearings during May. And we will hear, as they have suggested, even worse things coming out of more recordings that they have between uh, House uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and um, the, uh, the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. So, we may hear that, and they hope to wrap up and have a report that they will uh, send out, I think, in September. So that might be just in time for the November elections for people to digest it and for the media to, uh, to really delve into it. Two months would be a long time for them to get the stuff out. I'm less worried uh, that we won't see more revealing information than I am about how uh, it's going to be uh, disseminated and uh, digested by Republicans. They seem, as I said before, to like to engage in asymmetrical warfare. Uh, look what they did with Hillary Clinton. Two years of Benghazi. It really... Uh, pushed her ratings down to the point where that was part of the reason she lost in 2016. Uh, so Republicans are good about degrading the truth. And um, that's what I'm more worried about than whether this information is going to get out. Right. Well, I mean, I think if there is a report in September, um, well, the, the public hearing should be very helpful. And if there's a lot of attention, um, maybe they'll, they'll be some, uh, you know, reevaluation of Trump and his role and what that means for the future of the Republican Party and its candidates. 
Um, but I think, you know, at this point, it's kind of baked in. I don't think a report from the January 6th committee is going to have a big, big in influence on um, Republican voters necessarily that aren't, that aren't already having questions about it. I guess to me, it's, um, you know, you have um, the January 6th committee. They're divided, apparently, about whether they should make an official recommendation to the Justice Department for prosecution for crimes against the United States and so forth. Um, they're, and they're divided not because whether they think that this has actually occurred, but whether they think it might backfire. Um, and then uh, we, we don't what Merrick Garland and the Justice Department are doing about it. Some argue that there's um, there's some evidence there's background investigation already happening. They don't release whether they're doing investigations until something actually is brought forward. So, but my big fear is that they're, uh, the, the Justice Department doesn't do anything here and that somehow this all fades away without any consequences. And uh, that would be, uh, the long-term effects of that would be seriously damaging. And I know, Bob, you also wanted, uh, you had mentioned to me about the 14th Amendment and the idea that, um, you know, if you, or it's a requirement um, that those who have held public office, I mean, an oath to the United States or any state um, within uh, can't, cannot run for future office uh, without, you know, Congress can, can, you know, can, can lift that and undo it for, for particular individuals, but like two thirds vote. You know, right. Right. With a two thirds vote. And so are we going to, are we going to see any of this? We're seeing it in Georgia against Marjorie Taylor green um, now, because of some of the things that it's clear that she, she did relative to January 6th. Um, are these things going to be successful? Um, there's some big questions about it because, um, you know, in 1865, um, it was very clear what the what the insurrection was. It's it's um, and so there's not a lot of language that specifies what that means, uh, and there's no implementing implementing law, uh, and so those are challenges for actually um, going after it. Uh, you know, and 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 trying to keep some of these um, people who are involved in January 6 off the ballot, uh, and you know, it's a very interesting question and an important question. And uh, we're, we'll, we're, we'll see what happens in Georgia where they're, where they're you know, actually looking at the case. It's in court right now. Um, and so it'll be very interesting to, to see the result. Well, also, uh, this is some of the information that hasn't been released yet, is how involved were some of these elected officials in the January 6th insurrection. And here's what's interesting about that. Uh, so we saw pictures of these people doing dastardly things and beating up police officers and other uh, members of the uh, cap, uh, police force. That's not just the, uh, the Washington, D.C. Uh, police, but also uh, the House police. So at the time that they were showing these uh, pictures on the news, Republican members were saying, oh, this was just a normal tourist visit to the Capitol. So uh, that brings me back to Night at the Op Opera, the Marx Brothers movie, where Chico uh, Marx says to Margaret Dumont, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? <laughs> are we really that stupid that we're going to believe that this was a normal tourist uh, venture into the Capitol? This is going to come out in part of what the January 6th committee is going to offer. 
Well, I think there's lots of clear evidence that uh, Trump and some members uh, of the White House team and his uh, you know people around him were very much behind this effort to undermine the counting of the votes and to undo the election. There's a no no doubt about that. It seems um, seems like there's going to be some fairly damning evidence come out about certain members of Congress who were involved. In, in this, um, uh, Lauren Boebert from Colorado and uh, Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina and, you know, Paul Gosar and Louis Gohmert and, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and you name it. And so there are a number of a number of those people who might be held to account, too. But there's no question that this was not just some uh, act, some some event that happened spontaneously. We know this was something that was developed. Uh, there was a strong I mean, even. <laughs> You even have, um, you know, you even have the wife of a Supreme Court justice who's actively encouraging the president to engage in, uh, you know, insurrection. It's really quite astonishing. And um, so, you know, it's uh, it's pretty clear that there's wrongdoing here. Is it criminal wrongdoing? Um, it seems seems likely. And so, uh, there's, but given the the division uh, and the partisanship in the country right now. Uh, I'm not really surprised that um, the majority of Republicans aren't coming along with this and recognizing it. Uh, but, um, you know, I don't, I, but I think it's, uh, you know, this, it's going to be hard to maintain this over time, particularly maybe if this report is really uh, damaging to the claims that this is somehow just, you know, regular political activity, which of course it's not. Well, another thing that I, I wanted to mention is uh, all these laws that are being passed because there was such fear uh, in states about voter fraud, but the people seeming to be caught up in voter fraud are all Republicans. There was a guy in Pennsylvania who, after his wife died, he filled out her ball ballot and sent it in. Uh, it was for the Republican candidates, of course. And then uh, there is Mark Meadows, former chief of staff to Donald Trump who was registered in three states to vote, that North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. That in itself is a fraud. So all these laws that are being put into place in all these states that have Republican legislatures and governors are there for what purpose? To suppress the votes of minorities. Well, I mean, we know that um, from all kinds of uh, previous research that the uh, incidence of voter fraud in the United States is extremely rare to almost non-existent. And the idea that somehow this happened in a massive way in 2020 has just has been investigated and rejected in state after state and by court after court and, uh, you know, uh, independent you know, observer after independent observer. Um, so, but um, yes, Mark Meadows is a, it's a really crazy case, right? That he's, that he's um, registered in not just, not just two states, but three states. Um, and so, but I, you know, but you're right. I mean, I think ultimately there's, um, they know, Republicans know that minority groups like in places like Georgia, uh, young people, these are the reasons why they lost these close elections. And so they're going to, they're doing things to make it simply harder for those groups to vote. Um, it certainly would have the effect of, um, you know, things like reducing, um, you know, locations for uh, dropping your ballot off and early voting hours and all this kind of stuff. It has the same effect 
uh, legally on everyone, but we know exactly who's being targeted by these laws. And um, if you if you look at the situation Republicans are running into in places like Georgia, where it's changing and threatening their dominance, um, in some ways it's almost uh, you know the only way they can maintain power is by doing things that are really uh, run you know that that are questionable in terms of their. Um, legitimacy or, or in terms of the justification for them. And, um, you know, so things are in big in big flux, but no, no doubt that some of this, um, some of these things are designed to keep specific people from voting at specific uh, certain levels that could be damaging to the Republicans. And um, one of the things that Biden has not been able to do is to get his voting reform legislation through. And um, I think um, their Democrats are, are feeling some heat over that, too, from from those groups that are most uh, going to be most affected. Yeah. And that's one of the big problems. Like, for instance, if the John R. Lewis bill passed, it would change the way uh, that the laws in the state in the Constitution. It says that for congressional districts, the government gets to choose the districts if they impose that upon the states. The states choose the districts for the state legislatures, but not federal offices. We really haven't seen too many cases uh, where that has been uh, put into effect. But certainly uh, with the John R. Lewis uh, and uh, people registering to vote when they're of age, a motor voter, I guess, registration, uh, and all these other things, and the redistricting being done by a nonpartisan panel, as opposed to uh, mostly Republicans that engage in extreme partisan gerrymandering, as we've seen in New York and in, I think it's uh, Delaware, uh, Democrats have to a small degree engaged in that as well. But this is wholly on the backs of the Republicans. Uh, For instance, in Wisconsin, where the vote is about 50-50, they have 66 to 33 districts uh, in the state. Uh, North Carolina, another state, but that has been rejected by the the judges uh, so that it's more fair. But other states, like in Texas, uh, they have even eliminated a minority district, the black district, when The four million extra voters that they got in Texas were mostly minorities, and yet they reduced a minority district. Uh, No matter how you look at things, that's not fair. Well, I mean, it is anti-democratic, not Democratic Party, but democracy in general. And uh, but this is the way it's been done since the beginning. Uh, State legislatures and most states draw the lines for federal districts. Um, but it's just more partisan now than it used to be. And there are more states that have, you know, total control by one party. Um, and, you know, uh, let's you know, be fair, Bob, because the Democrats have been, uh, you know, have done this in New York. Um, in fact, they had hoped to, to win three more districts uh, based on that, three more House seats. Um, and it's happened in Maryland uh, also. But, you know, if you... One of the things that that is actually happening, at least in some of these instances, is that that states are um, the judges are actually pushing back, and uh, in some states there are laws that that allow them to, you know, to look at the makeup of districts and whether they're designed via the cracking and packing to benefit one party or to harm particular groups. 
Um, but we know the Supreme Court is no longer interested in looking at that and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And um, so it really falls on, on the states now to do it. But look, gerrymandering has been done for a long time. It's just that now it's so much, you have so much more data and it's you're so, so much better able to do it very um, specifically. And if you want to do that, it can create situations where you get um, a minority um, leader, minority control. And that's what's happening in some of these states by simply drawing boundaries that don't reflect voter, voter, um, you know, vote results of, of elections. And it's really, it's unfortunate, but, um, uh, you know, we have a redistricting commission in California. Other states are going to it, but not enough and um, not enough states that like to engage in this kind of thing. We've got a little over a minute to go. And uh, you talked about it's been going on for a long time. And yes, in Massachusetts, Governor Geary, that's, I think, how we pronounce it, not Jerry, uh, a two-headed salamander in 1824. Yeah. So that's how long it's been going on. So we mm -hmm. have one more minute to go. Uh, and then I believe it's Gordon Black and his wondrous world of music. So uh, in less than 30 seconds, can you sum anything up for us, Phil? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think the, the main thing I, I'm interested in is seeing what the January 6th committee is doing uh, and what that's going to result in. And I'm very interested in seeing these, um, you know, public hearings. And uh, I think that's the that's the big, big issue that we really need to be paying attention to before uh, fall of this fall's elections. And uh, hopefully we'll see some uh, movement there. Well, uh, it's been good to see you again or hear you again, Phil. Um, as I said, next uh, Friday will be my last show for a while, and um, I expect to be venting my spleen. So see you all, or hear, I'll, you'll hear me next week, and then I'll be off for a while. So thank you for listening, and thank you, Phil. This Thanks, has been boss. Politics, a Love Story. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.